Hello, my name is Donna Newman and I'm a partner in the Finance Litigation Group at Stevenson Harwood. Welcome to the second in our Autumn 2020 series of four short podcasts in which we take a bite-sized look at some key topics that have emerged from court or regulatory decisions over the last year. In this episode, Rebecca Mansbridge, an associate in our Finance Litigation Group, takes stock of the court's approach to financial mis-selling claims in light of the principles emerging from the case law over the last few years and discusses some key cases relating to misconduct in the context of benchmark manipulation and limitations of liability. Welcome to our podcast on financial mis-selling claims. In this podcast, we are going to recap the court's approach to mis-selling claims and discuss some key cases relating to misconduct in the context of benchmark manipulation and limitations of liability. In summary, mis-selling claims arise when a claimant has suffered loss as a result of purchasing financial products, e.g. interest rate swaps, and are generally cast as claims in misrepresentation, negligent misstatement, or negligent advice. On the one hand, misrepresentation relates to claims brought by contracting parties where the defendant has made a false statement to the claimant, which has induced the claimant into entering into the contract and the claimant consequently has suffered loss. On the other, negligent misstatement and negligent advice claims are brought in tort and often arise out of a contractual relationship. The claimant must show that the defendant owed a duty of care to state facts or advise carefully, that the defendant breached the duty of care expected of it, and that the defendant's breach was the cause of the claimant's loss. In addition to these claims, a private individual may also bring a claim under Section 138D of the Financial Services and Markets Act 2000 for breach of regulatory obligations. Case law has demonstrated that corporate entities are extremely unlikely to have standing for such claims, no matter how small the company or how incidental the purchase of financial products is to its main business activity. However, the bank's relevant regulatory obligations remain a material consideration in assessing the content of its duty of care in common law negligence actions and might be relevant to implied misrepresentation. Many claims of this kind were brought following the financial crisis in 2008, and it is unclear whether the current economic climate might trigger a new wave of mis-selling claims over the next few years. Following investigation into manipulation of interest rate benchmarks such as LIBOR and EURIBOR by the submitting banks, Borrowers have since brought claims seeking rescission of interest rate swaps on the basis that the bank impliedly represented that it either had not and was not seeking to manipulate the benchmark, or that the benchmark was an accurate representation of the cost of interbank lending. Marme Inversiones and NetWest Markets, related to swap arrangements required under a syndicated loan to finance the purchase of new headquarters for Santander. The swaps were set by reference to Eurobor. The transaction was entered into a few days before the collapse of Lehman Brothers, and in the intervening financial crisis, Marme found itself unable to refinance or repay the loan. Following publication of the European Commission's investigation into manipulation of Eurobor, Marme sought rescission of the swaps on the basis that RBS had made untrue representations about the integrity of the process and its knowledge about manipulation of benchmark rates. In a comprehensive judgment, which emphasises how fact-specific a claim for implied representation might be, the High Court reiterated a helpful review of authorities relating to when a representation might be implied, how a claimant might demonstrate reliance, and the available remedies for fraudulent and negligent misrepresentation. 
To start with, clear words or conduct are required for an implied representation. Silence or natural assumption are otherwise incapable of founding a claim in misrepresentation. Wide-ranging or complex representations are likely to require more in terms of words or conduct, and some representations might be too vague, uncertain, imprecise, or elastic to be implied. This was held to be the case in respect of a number of alleged representations asserted by Mame. The concept of maintaining integrity was too elastic, representations as to historic conduct were too wide-ranging, and there had not been sufficient clear words or conduct from which the representations contended for could be implied. The High Court was only prepared to allow a much narrower representation, not pleaded by Mame, but constructed by the Court of Appeal in Property Alliance Group and Royal Bank of Scotland, that by going along with the swap arrangements, RBS impliedly represented that it had not and was not seeking to manipulate Eurobor itself. However, since RBS was not a submitting bank in respect of Eurobor, this representation could not have been false. In conclusion, Limited conduct, such as entering into a contract, is capable of amounting to the limited representation that the lender is not and does not intend to act dishonestly in relation to that contract. Next, the claimant must then show that they relied on that representation. Mame is unequivocal. The claimant must demonstrate that contemporaneous thought was given to the matter at the time of entering into the transaction. A mere application of hindsight and wishful thinking is insufficient to establish reliance. In both Mame and Property Alliance Group, the claimants did not know at the time of entering into the swaps the process by which the benchmarks were set or how they were capable of being manipulated. There naturally could not have been any causal connection between the representations being made and the borrowers entering into the transaction. This should give some comfort to lenders. Although the courts appear ready to imply limited representations from entry into the swaps, that the bank is not itself misbehaving, there is still a high hurdle for a claimant to clear to be able to recover loss flowing from that representation. The measure of loss recoverable depends on whether the representation was made fraudulently, i.e. with the intention that the claimant would rely on it without an honest belief in its truth. The Court of Appeal and Property Alliance Group, although not required to deal with the point, doubted whether an implied representation could be given fraudulently. In Mame, the High Court considered whether the necessary intention could be given by inference, i.e. that the representor intends the natural and probable results of his actions in instances where the representor may have never thought about the representation and may not appreciate what a court later holds to be the implications of his actions. Whilst not required to determine the issue, had the pleaded representations been made out, the court appeared prepared to consider that the fact that a representation arises impliedly is not necessarily a bar to fraud. However, the High Court has recently highlighted that it is prepared to strike out opportunistic fraud claims that are inadequately pleaded, as was the case in Boys International and NatWest Markets and the Royal Bank of Scotland. While the courts can be prepared to adopt a generous approach to pleading fraud, there must be something which tilts the balance and justifies an inference of fraud as opposed to mere negligence. Nevertheless, in Mame, the court held that, even if it had found that the representations as pleaded had been made, that they were false and that Mame had relied on them, it would not have been open to the court to grant rescission of the swap arrangements as they formed part of an indivisible wider transaction. To do so would amount to a rewriting of the party's overall bargain. In this case, the swaps were entered into in contemplation of the loan, 
and they were meant to be performed together. The swaps were intended to hedge Mame's risk in the event of interest rate rises so that it would be able to continue to make interest payments under the loan. In reality, the banks would not have advanced funds under the loan without appropriate hedging arrangements in place, and the swaps were structurally interdependent because Mame was required by the loan agreement to maintain hedging arrangements. In conclusion, the courts will be unlikely to grant rescission of contracts which form part of a wider contractual matrix, particularly where one contract would not have been entered into without the parties also entering into another, such as hedging arrangements or security arrangements. Whilst fraud unravels all and a bank is not able to limit its liability for fraudulent representations, parties often include terms in their contracts to limit liability for negligent pre-contractual statements. These will provide that the client is not relying on any representation made by the bank or that the bank has made no representations to the client, notwithstanding that both parties might be aware that some representations have been made. These kinds of clauses, called non-reliance clauses, can give rise to contractual estoppel, whereby one party is prohibited from asserting a set of affairs different to that which they agreed under the contract. Another way in which parties often apportion liability in the contract at the outset is via a basis clause, which seeks to set out the nature of the relationship between the parties. These are frequently used to provide that the bank is not acting in an advisory capacity. A basis clause is likely to be fatal to establishing that the bank assumed a duty of care to provide advice with reasonable care and skill, as the claimant will be unable to establish that the bank assumed a duty to advise at all. The Court of Appeal provided some welcome clarity on the correct approach to basis clauses and non-reliance clauses in First Tower Trustees and CDS Superstores International. This claim concerned pre-contractual inquiries in relation to a warehouse lease agreement whereby First Tower Trustees, which I will call FTT, negligently misrepresented to CDS Superstores, or CDS, that the properties in question were free from asbestos. FTT sought to rely on a clause in the lease which stated that CDS was not relying in whole or in part on any pre-contractual statement made by FTT, and claimed that this was a basis clause setting out the basis on which the parties were proceeding to contract with each other. CDS claimed that this was an exclusion clause which did not pass the statutory test of reasonableness and was therefore void. The Court of Appeal agreed with CDS. Whilst it is always available to parties to agree the basis on which they shall proceed to deal with each other, a clause which has the effect of excluding liability for misrepresentation is likely to be subject to the statutory test of reasonableness under the Unfair Contract Terms Act 1977, or UCTA. The test for whether a clause is in fact an exclusion clause is whether, absent the clause, all other elements of misrepresentation are present, such as the claimant would be able to make its claim. As per Lord Justice Leggett, the distinction lies in the origin of the obligation. If the duty arises via contract, then the terms of the contract may define and delimit the primary obligations by means of a basis clause. If the duty arises via tort, or in the case of misrepresentation, statute, and independently from the contract, then a contract term is not capable of properly delimiting the primary obligations. However, depending on the true construction of the clause, a non-reliance clause asserting that no representations have been made may still hold evidentiary value in asserting that the representee did not understand a representation to have been made, or that the representee did not, in fact, rely on the representation. 
However, if all the elements of misrepresentation are made out in fact, then the clause is engaged as an exclusion clause and therefore must pass the statutory test of reasonableness under UCTA. Whilst basis and non-reliance clauses have been upheld as hallmarks of English freedom of contract, the Court of Appeal stressed the importance that parties are not misled into contracting on particular terms and that the clear intention of Parliament was that any attempt to limit liability in doing so must be reasonable. In First Tower Trustees, the Court of Appeal did not find the exclusion clause to be reasonable and so found it to be void. However, in doing so, it emphasised the importance of the commercial context. Don't forget, this related to pre-contractual inquiries, which the court found to have a distinct and important role, and that would in practice be rendered redundant by such blanket non-reliance clauses. Lord Justice Lewison did conspicuously note that in cases involving the sale of complex financial products to sophisticated investors, such clauses may well be reasonable. In conclusion, although the ramifications of this decision are yet to be fully explored, First Tower Trustees does not appear to have affected basis clauses which state that the bank is not acting as an advisor and that, as such, claims brought in the face of such a clause remain unlikely to succeed. In relation to non-reliance clauses, whilst likely to be subject to the test of reasonableness, some clauses may still be reasonable. The courts have previously upheld exclusion clauses that are freely negotiated between commercial parties of roughly equal bargaining power, especially if advised by lawyers. Lenders should be careful to ensure that the term is drawn to the client's attention and is clearly signposted in the agreement. The more prominent and clear the clause, the more likely it is to be upheld as valid by the courts. 